This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-E-F-T. You're listening to episode 179. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Save the date. We have announced our next virtual conference, the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be held on August 17th through 19, 2021. The website is now live and you can find full details on the event at conference.snn.network. Registration is open. So when you go to the website, click the register button and you'll be updated on everything when we announce speakers, sponsors, presenting companies, the works. So again, the website is conference.snn.network. I'll see you all there. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Dominique Miel. She is the author of the upcoming book, Damsel in Distress, My Life in the Golden Age of Hedge Funds, which will be coming out on September 7, 2021. Dominique's upcoming book is a memoir about her time working at Canyon Partners, which at the time was a small little known hedge fund. And over the span of two decades, she rose to the top of the firm as the only female partner and senior portfolio manager at a firm in what became one of the largest hedge funds in the U.S. We have a great conversation about her time working at Canyon Partners and all the lessons that she learned along the way. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 179 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Dominique Mia. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is a very special guest, Dominique Miel. 
She is the author of the upcoming book, Damsel in Distressed, My Life in the Golden Age of Hedge Funds. We're going to learn all about distressed investing, bankruptcy investing, hedge funds, a, a, a tale, a great story. I'm very excited to have her here. So Dominique, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. I'm great. It's great to have you. Where, where are you based? Are you are you in are you based in France? I'm in Los Angeles. Usually today I'm in Santa Barbara. You're my neighbor. What what Am are we I? doing this? What are we doing this via We Zoom? could have done this physically then. Man, we are we really we really dropped the ball for a lot of people. This is um this is a shame. But you know what? Hey, we're doing this via Zoom. But Santa Barbara, that's nice. I, I it's beautiful this weekend. We we're we're very blessed. Gorgeous. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I was introduced to you because I heard you do an interview on a couple other pods before, and because the book isn't out yet, it's coming out in September. The 21st. book is coming out September seventh, actually. Yeah, September seventh. Very good. So we're doing we're doing the the pre book tour. Exactly. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, again, thank you for joining us on here as, as part of the the, the pre book tour. And so, you know, I'd love to get your full background. You know, my my first question I usually always start with is, you know, let's start with your background. You know, where where did your passion for investing begin? Wow, I, I'm probably going to disappoint you because it came late, uh, late in life, at least compared to the legends of hedge funds that you hear about or you re read about who started trading uh, lemonades, you know, when they were in high school. But I was uh, born and raised in France. And after college, I figured I wanted to see the world. And the best opportunity I had was in banking in New York. And so I had no particular interest in finance at all, but I figured New York would be a good place to, uh, to, to, to live in. And that's what I did. And uh, I stayed, I became an investment banker for Lehman Brothers for a couple of years. They transferred me to the LA office. Um, as you know, and I've written an article about it, um, the, the life of an analyst in an investment bank is, uh, it, you know, the quality of life is not one of the top priorities of that uh, particular job. So after two and a half years of that, I went to business school. And that's when I really discovered an interest in, uh, in investing and, and uh, uh, a real taste for being on the buy side is through two classes, one of which was taught by Bill Sharp, uh, Nobel Prize and uh, inventor of the Sharp Ratio. So after that, I joined a teeny little hedge fund called Canyon Capital. There were six guys, literally six guys in an office that was probably half the size of a regular conference room. They were in LA. I wanted to be in LA. They hired me as an oddball uh, you know, woman in a, in a man's world, French at that. Um, and it was the only job I had after business school. I stayed 20 years. And when I retired in, uh, 2018, that, that, that was it from, <laughs> that was my entire career. Um, so, you know, I, I basically grew up with the hedge fund business because it was a small industry at the time, uh, relatively unknown. I don't think the public would have known what you meant if, if you said you worked. Certainly my friends and, and uh, social acquaintances had no idea what I did. Listen, you're in LA saying you're in finance. Okay. That is that, that is that right there. Like, That's okay. weird. 
as a start. Okay. That's weird as a start. And then, you know, mm. I work in a hedge fund, which for most people, frankly, had to do with landscaping, right? It was like <laughs> cutting hedges and everything. <laughs> So that was, I spent my time at parties thinking what a loser I am for the better part of the first uh, six months. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I, I, well, it's, I can so relate to that experience saying you're in a, you have some kind of finance job while living in LA. It's literally, it's end of conversation right there. I, well, not recently. And now it's, now they just ask you about crypto, but like, but, <laughs> but usually right. it's just end of conversation. <laughs> right. So it's a, yeah, it was a very secretive type of industry, very scrappy um, with a lot of uh, very intense people. Uh, so that hasn't changed, but virtually everything else has in terms of size and scale and, um, you know, ability to operate uh, discreetly, secretly have very special opportunities and distinct competitive advantages. I think, you know, as with every maturing industry, uh, it becomes very hard to outperform. Uh, outperform, and that's certainly something that I, you know, that I noted in the in the last years of my career. Did you feel a culture shock at all? I mean, look, you grew up grew up in France coming now to work, just work in general in the US, but in particular in finance. I mean, it's, what, what, what was that culture? It, I'm just assuming there was. It was, yes, because I had worked at large institutions. One was the very first one for a year was a French bank. Um, and then the, um, the second was Lehman Brothers, which was a very large institution. So coming to work for a small uh, almost like a, it wasn't quite a startup because they had started in 91 and I joined in 98, but it certainly felt like it. Um, it was a, it, it was a shock, but then again, everything was new. So it's sort of, I like to say, look, I, I could have worked with Teletubbies and I would have thought that's, that's great that, you know, let me figure out how to get along with them. Um, it was, it was an adventure. Uh, it was a place where I could see myself growing and uh, the place and the shop with it. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, there was no privacy. We were all in a conference room where you could hear everybody's conversation. This was before cell phones. So you actually had to make personal calls if you had to make any right there on the trading floor. Um, and uh, it was, you know, an open book, really. So let, let's dig into that. Okay, so it's 1998, fresh off coming from business. Where'd you go to business school, by the way? Stanford. Stanford, okay. I figured it was Stanford or UCLA, I would assume, you know, the, the LA. I, 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 did Pepperdine, I did Pepperdine, but at that time, I mean, it was- That's it right, was, I saw was, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it really, I mean, it was Stanford and UCLA are usually the calling cards. And stuff, right. But, you know, Pepperdine, we're, we're making a name. But, uh, but um, you know, take us back, you know, that first day or those first six months, you know, what was it like? What- what was that learning curve for you? 98 was interesting. I interviewed um, early 98 and the firm had about a billion in assets, which was a large, uh, you know, very, very consequent number at the time. On my first day in September, uh, the Dow Jones dropped some 600 points. And that was probably the largest loss uh, in, in the one day trading session 
what we was later called the Asian flu had started. And that was a global crisis that um, started with, in Thailand, but really quickly spread out to all, you know, Southeast Asian countries with severe devaluation of their currencies. Then the Russian crisis um, uh, piled on with Russia declaring a moratorium uh, on its debt. And then on top of that, long-term capital, this the largest hedge fund at the time, most reputable um, was uh, hemorrhaging cash. So it was a full-on crisis the first few days I arrived and the billion dollar in assets that I had you know, studiously written down in my notes for the job interview, I heard that we had 500 million. And I was so naive and so happy to be there that I thought, it's probably a typo. When I wrote down a billion, I meant to 500. But what does it matter? It's all good. 500 million is plenty of money. So I was genuinely, um, you know, in the best mood, positively uh, delighted to start my job. And it was a it, most uh, the partners and uh, the other few guys, I mean, there were five or six guys, were shell-shocked by the... Um, amplitude of the crisis. I mean, this was a real, this was 2008 uh, in terms of the scale it had on, on, uh, on investors. Um, so it was sort of, you know, you had, we were in, uh, in, you know, save the firm type of, type of mode. Uh, assets were either uh, cut in half because we had some emerging market exposure or people were taking out their money. So it was survival, really. Wow. Uh, and, and that went on for, for you know, the first, I can't remember, six months, eight months until things stabilized. But it was, a, it was an interesting uh, entry into the business. So what is so what what did they have you do like what you're just starting out things are going to hell like 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 they, what they not, had yeah they, they you know they told me hey why don't you look at uh, at this company and I think the 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 first company I looked at was a Brazilian company uh, I think it was or or Mexican it was either Semex or Pemex I didn't know anything. I didn't know left from right. I was a banking analyst. I could balance a balance sheet on an Excel spreadsheet, meaning it doesn't tell you whether you should buy a bond or not or a distressed situation. I didn't know any. So it took, I would say, the better part of three years for me to sort of come into my own and um, instead of uh, looking at other people's ideas uh, and and sort of um, building models for them and and uh, solidify their their thesis to actually have an opinion on my own. The um, what happened is really the two thousand one crisis, and I'm I'm going from crisis to crisis because in this it's kind of what you're looking for, right? It when there's a crisis, there are bankruptcies, they are stressed and distressed assets. There's a lot of damage and rumbles and and that's what you that's what you do. You you just go through it hoping for a, a, a little diamond in in the rough. Very much I think I imagine what people do when they invest in microcap 
right? There's there's a ton of garbage. Oh, the, oh, the hair. Spot, right? It, it, the, the more hair, the better sometimes, you know? It, it keeps people away, but it allows you to take your time to, you know, really assess if this is something that you want to sink your teeth into. No, exactly. Totally. So 2001 started with the dot-com bust, and that was not so um, fruitful for, for us because it was mostly um, equity caps that were tanking. But then the telecom crisis, which got a lot less press in the media, that was a full-on disaster. Um, that was the time when cable was put to the ground, wireless companies were laying networks, um, and all this was financed with leverage at a very, very rapid pace, thinking that um, clients, customers would come. And of course, you know, it's it's always the same story. The investments are enormous, and then there's a little bit of lag to get uh, to get the revenue and the cash flow from from customers, and that just triggered an enormous loss of value at bankruptcies. I mean, I think that was. Um, you can't minimize the uh, the 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 scale of that disaster. Of I think the telecom index plunged ninety percent. Uh, there and that so so it was sort of a boot camp. They were you know you could think of Global Crossing, Welcome, uh, Covad, uh, every single and, and those names would probably say nothing to you because they simply don't exist anymore. But every cable company, internet provider, wireless tower companies, they all filed. So there was so much to look at that I really, you know, I got up every morning and, and had a fresh batch of stuff. And on on top of the telecom crisis, it was the time when um, corporate malfeasance was rampant. This was before SOX. So before the financials were signed by the CEO, the CFO. And so you had very large bankruptcies, Enron, WorldCom, Conseco, Tyco Electronics, you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars of distressed assets. That's the sort of supply versus a demand on the hedge fund side and distressed side that was small. There was probably, I don't know, 500 billion in assets uh, managed by hedge funds. So it was, you know, it was a case where it was a giant buffet of distressed. Wow. So, I mean, take me back to that time then. I mean, we're, I mean, you already have. But like, but when you're assessing all these various opportunities, you know, what was, how did you, how, what, what were some of your criteria for picking out that higher quality distress stuff versus some of the others? Well, in distress, there, there's kind of two types of, of due diligence of, of research. One is the, the one that you would do for any, um, any investment, uh, the, the macro environment, the the business the company is in, the company itself, its uh, financials, the management team, vendors, competitors, all that to sort of um, paint a picture of what the position the company is. And typically, the, the company is not in a good position. Otherwise, it wouldn't be distressed. That's one part. Um, and the goal is to say, um, you know, how much time do they have? Uh, can they can they survive? Do they have to file? When do they have to file? But the other part that's very specific to distress is to really 
do sort of a detective analysis on the capital structure. What are the layers of the capital structure? Who owns what? What security uh, collateralizes what layer? And therefore, who is incentivized to do what to whom in the bankruptcy when sort of the game stops? So it's really a, a game of risk, if you will, where you position yourself in a layer of the capital structure. Maybe it's the senior secured, maybe it's the subordinated bond, maybe it's the trade claim, maybe you bought some insurance claim from uh, uh, an, an insurance company that doesn't want to deal with it. Maybe it's the very bottom layer, the, maybe it's even the equity. That would be rare, but it's possible. And then really a strategic thinking about how that game of risk is going to proceed. And to know that, you just have to go through scenarios. And um, with experience, you accumulate precedents of how things go. Um, you start really digging into the, the documents for each uh, piece of debt, and they can vary. And the smallest covenant can make the difference between a losing and a, and a winning trade. Um, and then uh, you you position your peons, right? Uh, you Maybe you have a layered position, maybe you have, you know, a, a startup position and you, and you move and you get bigger. That's, that's the work. And that comes with doing it really. Right. Well, so what was the trade from that time that you like, it's just crystallized in your brain of like, wow, I can't believe I did that or I was a part of it. There, I would think there's a couple. The first one is, is a trade that went tragically wrong. And I don't know if, uh, if most investors are like me, but I tend to remember a lot the trades where I lost money. Oh yeah, that's that's, they're, pretty they're, they're, that's, pretty that's pretty consistent on here. That's 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 they're totally really <laughs> searing. But I bought bonds in Welcome at ninety six on uh, cents on the dollar before they filed for bankruptcy. So the company was already um, tainted by the CEO, this this guy Bernie Ebers, who was uh, you know pretty volatile, very eloquent. Uh, maybe charismatic, but certainly a, a character. And he had borrowed some $400 million from the company, which is, you know, I don't think he would do that today. Anyways, so so there was already a taint, but certainly um, nothing else would have indicated that the company was fraudulent. So those bonds were coming due a few months um, after. So literally, I just had to bite my time for four months and get uh, 100 cents on the dollar and call it a victory. Except that um, one day I go to the dentist for an hour, come back to the office and the head of research says, hey, have you read the news on WorldCom? I go, no, what? The, did they pay my bond? You know, always the, the positive thinker. They go, no, nah. he goes, no, nah, not exactly. Not exactly. I read the headline. And the SEC had started an investigation for uh, fraudulent accounting, and there was a mischarge of some three billion. It was something so 
outrageous that yeah. it was game over literally upon reading the 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 subject on Bloomberg and my bonds had dropped to 20 cents on the dollar. Oh jeez. <laughs> so there you pretty much want to die at at that moment Oof. or cry or just call your mom, you know, to pick pick <laughs> yeah, you up I'm after sure. school and just Ugh. um so so that you know that was uh <laughs> that was the setup. Um it it turned out to be a fascinating case. It was a, a, a really uh, uh, complicated one. But what happened is my partners knew at least part of that business because part of Welcome was MCI, which had financed itself with, with bonds uh, through Drexel. And that's where they came from. To make a, story, a long story short, we sort of re um, looked at the situation as if we had never looked at it before. And we ended up buying a lot of bonds in the in the 20 cents area and a lot of MCI bonds rather than welcome bonds. And it ended up being a winning trade some years after, I think the bankruptcy took a couple of years, uh, but, you know, very much in spite of my initial trades, right? But in the process, it was sort of a concentrate of everything you should know. Don't, don't buy stuff that has... Um, you know, low probability, but very high consequences in terms of risk. Uh, do re-underwrite a situation when the price has changed radically. And don't lose your nerve if the right situation is uh, uh, to actually buy more at a different price. But And that was very much, you know, I was helped by two veterans in the, in, in the stress who, who could do that. Absolutely. So, okay. So, so, you know, catch us up a little bit. So, okay. So you got there at 98 for the first three years, you kind of getting your legs under you, getting your own conviction, building up your own confidence to where you can start to make more of the decisions on your own, you know, so then from 2000, so I guess that's 2001, right? 2001 Correct. on, you know, what, what, I mean, I guess from 2001 and, and then into the financial crisis, I mean, did what then happened in this distressed, uh, institutional area? Did it just really start to really grow and expand and then it, it started to become more competitive? It, it did. Um, O1 distressed funds really outperformed. I mean, they were up 20%. So that was a a, a, a shocker to uh, to institutional investors. They took notice and they no took notice also because a man by the name of David Swenson, who was a CIO at Yale, wrote a book about the way he invests uh, Yale's endowment. And it was very much preaching an allocation to alternative uh, managers, meaning hedge funds and private equities. And that triggered the performance, uh, Swenson's influence, which you really can't minimize. Um, and, uh, and people wanting to make money triggered uh, the, the, the growth uh, part of the business. So, you know, every endowment, pension fund, uh, insurance, large company started to think, aha, we should probably have an investment in private equity and hedge funds. And tons of hedge funds just sprang up uh, in different categories. So there was, there was a, a period of intense growth and and very good performance because again part of it 
was there was still tons of bankruptcies for a relatively small universe of people wanting to invest in them. So when there's supply demand imbalance, you have you know the you you have some advantages. You you have the ability to to pick the market and and find good stuff. Um, and that went on for for a while. Um, and it's interesting because in while in in one um, distressed and hedge fund clearly outperformed the the indices by 2007 2008 the hedge fund industry and distressed was already really quite big and so it it didn't outperform it lost money in in 08 it did great in uh in 09 and 2010 but not uh, not better than the S&P and in my mind and then after that, uh, there was virtually no significant uh, outperformance on a consistent basis. Sure, some years hedge fund outperformed, some hedge funds even outperformed very regularly. But on average, uh, it's very tough to make the claim that f hedge funds systematically or consistently or even persistently, if you want to use a statistic, statistical term outperform the market because at some point they've they became the market right well okay so i'm gonna go back again real quick because i just realized there was one question i really wanted to ask there and it might be a dumb question for those listening who are a bit more technical and understand things even better than me but so how did how did the passing of socks change the distressed industry i think it changed in that um there's a lot less, at least theoretic, theoretically, ability to uh, to fudge the financials. I'm not sure it changes the distressed uh, more than it changes the investing landscape in general. Um, but uh, it's uh, hopefully it's harder to dupe investors by by uh, you know uh, through fraudulent accounting, which was really in 0102. Uh, there was a contagion of of it. Yeah, that's for sure. I was I was just curious. By the way, if Sox is said it's short for Sarbanes Oxley for anybody that correct what the Sarbanes Oxley Act was, and 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 I encourage everybody to go look it up. Um, it's 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 very it was quite a game changer for the financial industry to to say. I think least. it that you said it right. I think it was a game changer for the financial industry and distressed as part of one. Uh, you know, was was affected. By that i don't know that it was affected more than than anything else right all right okay so now so now we're gonna go back okay now we're in the gfc area i mean so what was what was that growth process then like for you you know from 2001 going through gfc and even up until you your retirement you know how did you feel like you evolved as an investor what 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 changed for you what didn't change what changed uh drastically is that i started having my own portfolio um of course in, in uh like in any company and any hedge fund the decisions to invest or um you know you don't make it on on your own uh but these uh became my ideas my portfolio so and i became a portfolio manager and the my great breakthrough really was after September 11, when all the airlines went uh, bankrupt. That's a sector that was assigned to me. And so you can imagine uh, after September 11, virtually all American airlines except Southwest 
uh, filed for bankruptcy, some very shortly after, like United, some some years after, like American Airlines, I think, ended up filing in 2005, but they all did. And so those were big capital structures with tons of different uh, pieces of debt from secure loans to junior bonds, convertible bonds, municipal bonds, and in a very specific area called uh, trust certificates, which are bonds collateralized by aircraft. And nobody had looked at that. So I became the person who does that. And it was incredibly profitable and lucrative. And that that was a breakthrough that that allowed me to sort of elevate my my role, my job uh, as portfolio manager, as somebody who can meet investors and talk about a cool sector uh, and one that was uh, pretty uncorrelated to the market. So that so that was really the the thing. And after that, you know, the job doesn't change that much, except you have more money to invest. So you need more ideas and uh, you make more money, which is uh, as, a, as, as a portfolio manager. And you become, uh, you know, more of a, of a, you have your own business, right? So, so instead of every day waking up and, and working on your on a model for somebody else, you wake up every day thinking, all right, where's my portfolio? Am I balanced enough? Would I rather own uh, Nextel bonds or American Airlines, uh, you know, enhanced equipment trust certificate? Uh, should I swap this position for another? Uh, what other ideas do I have that I may pursue? So it becomes a very entrepreneurial uh, and creative job. That's the thrill of it. That's, I, that just sounds like so much fun. I mean, it is so it, fun. It really is an incredibly uh, creative job, is the best word I can think of. Because mm -hmm. to get a company out of bankruptcy, of course, you need to. Uh, do the analysis on the financials and the the you know the the entire puzzle that is a company, but you may need to think about an emergence plan. Maybe there are securities that you need that are kind of bes bespoke to that business or that situation because you have to corral all the stakeholders to approve mm -hmm. the plan and come out of bankruptcy, and that means you know, having, talking to different committees, uh, imagining what they want, finding a, you know, in-between solution where nobody's really happy, but nobody's really unhappy. And that's probably the solution that sticks. Uh, so it's a very strategic job. No, I love how you mentioned that it's a lot of the game of risk. Happens to be my favorite board game, by the way. So that's really, that was, a that, you got me there. I was like, all right, maybe I should get into distress investing right now. But um, <laughs> but uh, what's it like living in the weird? I mean, flat out. Like, what's it like living in the weird of these, you know, strange, weird niche stories? I mean, that you know, what 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 was it like for you? Well, it's uh, it's all encompassing. You know, it's the job itself is, you know, in terms of hours. I came in at at six thirty in the morning, which is when the the market opens on the East Coast. And I could leave at, at 6 p.m. So the, so the you know it's a very regular you know job and uh, 
and I think it's perfect if you have a family, et cetera, but, but you live with your positions, right? And uh, it's constantly on your mind. So that's a grind. You're constantly thinking about what you're going to, what your next move is, what somebody else's next move is in the opposite camp or the guy who's fighting you on the, on the plan. Um, and it's also not something that's particularly interesting at dinner parties, right? So the uh, intricacy of a Puerto Rico bond might be something that you, you are, you could go on and on for hours about it. It's so interesting. It's so fun to discover that one may have the backing of the U.S. Treasury because it was part of the recovery plan and one does not. And, you know, what clearly recoveries should be different there. But that's not something that's very easy to share with, <laughs> with anybody else. So, um, you know, I think you shouldn't really, uh, there's a you carry a lot in your head and it's not something that that is uh is particularly riveting to anybody but you and the, the other guys in the office for sure i mean I, well and, and look you're on a microcap podcast i'd be remiss if i didn't ask if you didn't come up i'm sure you came across one or two small micro nanocap stories in the distressed bankruptcy area at the time while you were there yeah i it I mean, all those equities after uh, emerging for bankruptcy are in a tough spot because they're illiquid, they're often OTC, and they're owned by mostly creditors. And creditors are not necessarily the best owners of a company in terms of they're the ones that are probably going to want the cost savings and they're not looking out for growth because they're so used to sort of tightening the belt because they've got a massive um, weight of, of interest, interest expense to face. Uh, so, not, you know, I don't remember anything that sticks in particular, but definitely it's a it all it's a byproduct of the bankruptcy process for sure got it all right so you know i'd love to ask about you know the culture at, at canyon capital you know it it sounds like i mean it, for you personally it sounds like you were ready to get after it no matter what wherever you were you were you wanted to be hooked and you wanted to just learn as much as you can to advance your career. But it sounds like the culture was really one that fostered that curiosity in a sense you know what what was it like there at canyon um, it was, at least at the beginning, it was a small place. So it was uh, what you could imagine. Everybody had to do their part. We were mostly, um, you know, most old decisions or big investments were sort of a, a make or break one at that size. Because one thing's for sure is a small hedge fund is always on the brink of closing, right? You have a few months of bad performance. Your anchor investor uh, takes his money out, and you're done. So the the you know the first years were very much everyone is trying is rooting for the company to become bigger and stabilize, um, and then it becomes a, it became more of an institution, a very large company. When I left uh, three years ago, it was 25 billion in assets and 250 people. So that changes a lot. Um, they are like in every place, I imagine, office politics and, and uh, competition between portfolio managers to 
uh, get assigned capital. Capital is not infinite. So the more capital you have behind your ideas, the, the more likely it is that you're going to make a killing. So, you know, you just are constantly uh, fighting for asset allocation for your portfolio, your uh, your ideas. So, so the culture does change. Like I, I imagine, or did change at Canyon. Like I imagine it does for every every company. Uh, but I I love the 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 guys uh, the who founded the company. I uh, somehow we meshed, we gelled, and uh, and it was a it was also a great time to to start and and you know, stick with it, frankly, that that was more lucky than than anything else. I mean, I'm just so happy to hear that, you know, I mean, look, that's not to say probably it wasn't all positive. I'm sure there was a lot of experiences that you look back on that you're like, you know, typical of what women experience in the financial industry, you know, I mean, what, if you don't mind me. Oh, yeah, no, of course, that doesn't mean that it wasn't uh, lonely and at times extremely uh, um, uh, tough to be the only woman in uh, on the investing side. The only woman who uh, th- there was a second woman who was made partner uh, later than me, but I was the only uh, female partner for a while, and I was certainly the only female investing uh, partner and portfolio manager. So. Uh, and that was not uh, specific to Canyon, right? All my my twenty years, I met uh, two female, two other female partners. So that just gives you a sense. And what's particularly damning is that it it hasn't changed at all. Typically, you would imagine that a comp- uh, an industry that becomes more um, institutionalized, larger, sort of, you know, pedestrian type of business becomes more welcoming to different people or, or at the very least realizes that we need some fresh blood, right? Now we're very big. Uh, it's not clear that our investment team with the 10 white male from Harvard is doing anything different from the next guy who's got 10 Stanford white males, right? right? So how about we get some fresh ideas, fresh, fresh um, ways of, of looking at things. And that has not happened. That is, to me, uh, 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 very damning. And, uh, and, and not only because I think, hey, it's not fair that women and minorities, but also because they're, they're, it's a wasted opportunity to have a better investment process. I think it was, right? I mean, I, I, I think you'd ask 10 people, hey, do you think a diverse team makes better decisions than a non-diverse team within a corporate uh, uh, setting? They would po- probably all agree that, that, yes, different perspectives lead to better decisions. And that's proven in numerous academic studies. That has not happened uh, by and large, right, uh, in, in the hedge fund world. It's it's really important to to bring to light, you know. And I think the more we talk about it, whether it's on podcasts, launching new podcasts that feature more women in finance, I, I mean, at least for me, that's that's the only thing that I feel like has helped in some respect. But I mean, there's there's still just such a long way to go. I think you're right, and I think that's the reason I wrote the book. Um, 
it's not because I want to be famous or I want to make money. That that is probably the last thing that that all happened. But I wanted to um, at least show that it's possible to have a very positive experience in uh, a business that's lucrative, that doesn't hurt anything if women start making money or think they can make money. Um, but at least that young, look, if there's one young woman who's uh, an MBA student or, or in college taking a finance class who reads my book and thinks, well, that woman seems like a regular, normal person, and she had a great career and she retired before 50, why can't I? Then I have succeeded. I mean, that's that that's everything right there, right? I mean, that I I would just I just want this book to be a massive success. You know, I think. I think oh God! Well, I mean, dream on because <laughs> the, the publishing industry is not exactly welcoming of uh, unknown uh, first books, but. Again, you, if it, you got a publicist though, let's get you that publicist. Let's get you, let's get, I mean, look, uh, listen, classic microcap investors, right? Like I'm getting you on before you, before the institutions get you at CNBC and, and, uh, and, and uh, some of the other ones, you know, I mean. Uh, no, but so. I really appreciate being invited by, by you, by uh, the, the other couple guys who, who, uh, and women who reached out is because I think there is an interest in featuring different people on different paths so it's uh it and and as you said educating more people uh, uh on the uh, on the art and craft of investing the more we do that the better 100 percent. and not only that you have another part of your experience that is really beneficial to a lot of women looking into finance and the opportunities in finance you're also a board member you're board right. director on 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 a number of publicly traded companies, you know. So, I, I so okay. So you, you finish at Canyon Capital. I mean, is what did you think to yourself? Okay, my next natural transition is you know I want to I, I want to be a board director, or did you think to yourself, okay, these are companies that I find very interesting and I think I can add value? And then, no, like, I, how, how I, I constructively thought, you know, what I want to what I would like to do is be on a board, and I love it. Uh, I get to give my opinion and do nothing. It's great. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's it's uh, it, oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's, it's such a different perspective um, after being on the on the on the invest, investing side for for 20 years. I realize how little I could know of the real sausage making of a company it's it's really a an awakening that it's very hard to know what's going on inside a company and that uh, you know what it and i was thinking about um again micro cap small cap and i think there's something there right because you can get the management on the phone and you 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 really can get a, a very good feel for that business if you're going to invest in Tesla, what do you know? What do you know more than the next guy, right? It's it's really such a big picture bet that it almost has very little to do with 
the company or the job, the, the, the work you can do, right? Um, but yeah, it being a board member is a, is a fantastic opportunity. Very good. I, so what, what, as a board member, you know, what, what are some of the things that you like to contribute in, in, as, as um, being on that board, you know, what's from your own experience that, that you bring to the table there? Like what's been some of those, um, those boardroom I, conversations? Like? I think uh, I'm particularly interested in companies that go through a transition and by transition, I mostly mean uh, on the capital structure side. So be it, I was on the board of a company called Enworth, which sold uh, to another company called ReadyCap. They're small cap companies, mortgage REITs. So the, the M&A uh, piece of the deal, I thought I, I could bring value because I I've looked at and done a lot. Obviously, I was um, on the board of PG&E during its 19 months bankruptcy. I was the audit uh, chair and uh, part of the restructuring committee and the executive committee. There, uh, I think my bankruptcy knowledge was was helpful in uh, getting the company out quickly and negotiating with all the parties, bondholders, shareholders, the governor's office, the insurance companies. Um, so I like this. I like to think that my value has a lot to do with changing capital structures or, or optimizing capital structure. And where I'm frankly learning more than um, than contributing probably is on the operational side because I've I've never operated a company before. I mean, I, I ran my business, my portfolio, I ran the CLO business at Canyon, but these are sort of more financial assets that you, that you move around. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're now at the question that I love to ask everybody that comes on here and you've kind of answered it already a little, or you gave one story already, but what would you say was an experience or an investing experience that has impacted you the most in your career? Uh, probably Puerto Rico, um, which uh, was a very fascinating case. And not only because of the scale of it, but mostly because of the political nature uh, of the case. So Puerto Rico filed around 2016, biggest municipal bond issuer, 19 different uh, bond issues um, and a, a, a territory that was in deep recession for at least 10 years. And it's often the case that a bankruptcy doesn't come, you know, from one day to the next, but after years of sort of neglect and, and, uh, and uh, mismanagement. Um, it was that case dragged on uh, and it's still going on actually there's still no resolution for the general obligations but it re it was the the one that marked me the most in terms of how do you how do you try to get people around the table to acquiesce on on a way out and um, you know when when people are acting rationally meaning for me rationally is simply to optimize their profit that's one thing but when rationally becomes much more meaning that there is a humanitarian crisis right because people in puerto rico don't have their you know schools are closing hospitals are closing 
And when politicians have a rational on their own, which is to be reelected, then it becomes immensely difficult. And uh, uh, it even maybe that then you need to sometimes take uh, make decisions that are more for the sake of expediency than really the the good of the case. And that I think that's the one case where I felt uh, I'm just not sure there's a real solution here. So that was that was uh, it kept me at my job for a few more years uh, than uh, than than I would have if for if that case hadn't presented itself because it was so interesting and and new and fascinating. But there were definitely days of deep dark days where I thought this is never the the Commonwealth is never going to come out of this. Uh, now I understand some. At least uh, a few bond issues have uh, have emerged and and uh, restructured and done well, but the the regular general general obligations are still in in a little bit of a, a tough spot. Very good. All right. So before I let you out of here, you know, what advice do you have for new investors? women, everybody, what, what advice do you have for them looking at the stock market or investing for the first time or finance in general? The current stock market, meaning advice as to how to invest their own money or advice uh, professionally just, if they want to have a career in finance? All the above. Okay. Well, my, my answer is going to be the same for all the above, <laughs> which is it's really tough to get to give such a general advice. And I think if anything, I'm very wary of self-help books written by hedge funds and other financial uh, finance experts. I find them. I find that the sort of one-stop shopping never works. I tried to read a few of them, and it's sort of never applicable. And you know, it's like Buffett when he says, well, I buy companies with very large moats at a great price. That's great. But that was never my business. I was in the business of buying pretty shitty companies, uh, hopefully for the right price. But I never I never found a bankrupt company that was great uh, <laughs> because it wouldn't have been in bankruptcy. All this to say, I guess the, the most I could say is stick with it. I find that resilience is a little bit of an underrated um, quality that really goes a long way, either if you have an investment that's turned sour or if you're in a 100% male uh, uh, industry where you have a tough time to be heard and, and have your, your opinions valued. Sticking with it is usually, you know, and have a, having some sense of humor is is a good start. Very good. All right, Dominique, I, I think this is a great place to end it. You know, where can my audience go and find more information about you as well as to pre-order the book? The book is on pre-order on Amazon uh, coming out on September 7th. And I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn. I have my website. I have tons of time. So anyone who wants to reach out and have a conversation, I'm, I'm here. Very good. Well, Dominique, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an absolute pleasure. Good luck. Stay safe. And we're going to, we're, we're, we're neighbors. We're going to have, have to get together coffee. soon.
Thank yeah, you definitely. so much. Thank you Thank for you. having me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well-equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.